This Restorative Justice Life is a production of Amplify RJ. Follow us on all social media platforms at Amplify RJ. Sign up for our email list and check out our website at AmplifyRJ.com to stay up to date on everything we have going on. Make sure you're subscribed to this feed on whatever platform you're listening on right now so you don't miss an episode. And finally, we'd love it if you left us a rating and review. It really helps us literally amplify this work. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to This Restorative Justice Life, the podcast that explores how the philosophy, practices, and values of restorative justice apply to our everyday lives. I'm your host, David Ryan Barcega Castro Harris, all five names for the ancestors, and I'm the founder of Amplify RJ. On this podcast, I talk with RJ practitioners, circle keepers, and others doing this work about how this way of being has impacted their lives. Hi there, I'm Elise, and I'm so excited to help produce This Restorative Justice Life podcast. We are so excited to have Desiree Anderson as our guest today. Desiree has worked in higher education at the Intercultural Center at St. Mary's College of California and also in multicultural affairs at Tulane University in New Orleans. The grind never stops for her though because she is currently pursuing her PhD at the University of New Orleans. So this episode features some really great dialogue about empathy, higher education, and restorative justice practices. In addition to our weekly podcast, Amplify RJ has many engaging opportunities planned for Black History Month. You should go check out our Black Her Story reading list that highlights many empowering Black women. You can find some more details on our Instagram page or in the show notes. We are also hosting a History of Black Abolition Movements workshop on Saturday, February 6th and 27th from 9 to 11 a.m. Pacific time. Well, (laughs) enough of me. Let's get into this conversation. Welcome, Desiree. Who are you? Uh, short answer, easy one. I am Desiree Anderson. Who are you? <laughs> um, I'm the child of Barbara Lee Minor. Who are you? I'm an educator and seeker of liberation. Who are you? I am hungry. <laughs> Who are you? Um, I am a person who loves to help others, sometimes to the sacrifice of herself. Who are you? Uh, I don't know, I'm running out of things of who I am. Um, I'm like, what am I, I'm like, I'm just wearing my Louisville sweatshirt today, so I'm a proud Louisville Cardinal. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, who are you? Um, I am a girl who's caught between Southern living and California dreaming. Mm. Well, thank you so much. We're going to get into some of those intersections and a lot more. Um, I do want to give you an opportunity. Do you want to grab a bite (laughs) really quick? We have some time. (laughs) No, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. (laughs) So then with the fullness of the question, uh, given all that this last year has brought us and, you know, where we are now, how are you? You know, I think um, the introvert side of me is content of, like, (laughs) being in this kind of isolation and and social distancing. But I think the, um, the educator in me, the person who kind of does this restorative work is, um, in a deep state of like 
frustration um, that, like, you know, we're we're still in the year of 2020 having the same conversations that we've been having for however long we've been having them. Um, mm-hmm. And I think in this time and in this year where people have a little bit more time, perhaps, to do their own learning and, and things like that, that it's still not quite happening. And so I think that that, it just did a, um, basically an emotional intelligence thing and like my lowest score was optimism so that that should that pretty much sums that up um and so it's like high emotional you know challenge for all this weekend but like my outlook on life is kind of like I mean you know if you set the bar low you know people just won't disappoint you anymore so I think that's kind of where I'm at at this at this juncture in life of just you know Hope for the yeah. best, but just assume the worst. That that resonates <laughs> on a painful level. Um, but I do want to ask, what does give you hope? I mean, I, I think even with that, that particularly, again, I, I work with young adults. I work with college-age students for the most part. And so I think seeing them and the work that they're striving to do this generation and knowing that there are folks who are actively trying to do their own learning and unlearning um, and our challenging systems. And so recognizing that there are, um, you know, every generation, there, there people still have that kind of, that there are other people who are more optimistic than me um, who are continuing to want to do this work. And so that's really where I find hope. Yeah, definitely. Like community is so key for us to be able to continue this work, not just because, like we actually need other people to physically do the work, but you know, right. to keep our own spirits up um, and to know that a different world is possible. Um, and the world that we're trying to build is one that's rooted in interconnection, right? Restorative justice and community. Um, you've been doing this work for a while, probably yeah. before you knew the words restorative justice. So in your own words, how did this work get started for you? Yeah, I mean, I think I've always thought about justice systems in very I don't I don't I'm not like unique ways but just different ways probably comparative to other people um being around folks who have been in prison um and being able to see them as whole humans like worthy Mm -hmm. of love um but then also recognizing that the way that we often think about justice or punishment just never felt quite right to me um and so I think my initial kind of understanding of this different type of reconciliation really didn't happen until 2013 um I was at a a, an educational conference and we were talking about the school to prison pipeline and that's where I first really learned the term restorative justice in this particular context. And I'd heard the term before in relation to criminal justice, but never really did my own work around it. But once I understood it as something that could be done in an educational setting, I was like immediately went home and was like, and Google search. Uh, mm-hmm. What is this? How do we do this? What do we do? And I got connected with the Center for Restorative Approaches in the city of New Orleans and um did some collaborative work with them and uh we did kind of a trade-off which is I don't I they might have gotten a better deal um but they allowed me to do their four-day training for free 
and I help them develop some survey surveying instruments um, and help do some kind of observational work. And um, I think from there, um, doing the training and then doing some of that observational work and then working closely with a, a non-traditional high school, I quickly kind of fell in love with the principles um, and the framework and philosophy of what restorative sort of justice could do. And I think it, it just aligned with my own personal values around justice. Um, and again, seeing people as whole and recognizing that the root cause of people who cause harm is often because they too have been harmed and how do we address those things? Um, and so, yeah, that just kind of, it was there and it lingered for a little while. And then I kind of picked it back up into my own practice and work. Um, cause I was doing, I was having students who were assigned, if you will, to meet with me for being like, you know, racist or homophobic or anti-Semitic. And I was just like, this, this doesn't work. This doesn't make sense. Like, I'm sure that there are some educational things that are happening here in the moment, but it also felt like the, the people who were impacted were, were, were being left out of that process. And, and for me, that was like that, this doesn't make any sense. So what can we do about it? And that was what then drove my dissertation. And then my work from there and then the book chapter and so forth so yeah i don't know that was that was a ton and like that's what that's what we're here to like dive into i want to like go all the way back to the beginning of what you said how you talked about like growing up around people who have been in prison and those people you see them as people not just like the terrible thing that like or the worst thing that they've ever done in their life those are people that you had relationships with outside of that um so much of this work right is about having people be seen for like the fullness of their humanity the good wise and powerful um inside all of them despite um you know the harmful actions that people have taken uh how did that uh become really clear for you growing up um i mean i think I mean, part of it is, like, I think, too, just this idea of, like, what is what is crime? Like, I think that mm-hmm. was a question that was always just kind of in the back of my head. Like, who decided that this thing was illegal? Like, right? Like, who decided right. that this thing... What, because, it's like, e- egality and morality are not... They're, they're not mutually exclusive, right? Like, they don't necessarily intersect all the time. So things that we may think as being immoral could be legal, and things that we think of being you know, moral could be illegal. And so it just, I think, so my mom gave me, um, (laughs) I was like, thanks, this is the best birthday present ever. Um, the African American Almanac. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever (laughs) seen that big book. Um, but it is huge. And part of my gift as a child was to read these people about these people, basically, um, and tell her about, you know, a random person, like, once a week, basically, I had to, like, learn about these, these beautiful, wonderful black people. And in recognizing and doing some of that work, I think that's where I really started to understand, like, how much of the things that, like, these individuals were denied were legal. Like, it was legal to deny mm-hmm. these people yeah. things. And so that kind of concept, I think, kind of stuck with me. And then thinking about the people in my life who were kind of going in and out of prison for things that were deemed illegal that I, you know, like, yeah, sure. Could they be harmful to communities? 
maybe, but they're more harmful to themselves than anything else. And and why did this thing become a thing that is a a crime against the state? But it's not we're not talking about it really in the context of like the harm against people. Um, Because we're not, that is the supposed reason for this punishment of moving people away. But we're not actually doing any of things that then will actually help the people that they are supposedly harming. Mm -hmm. And so it was like the cyclical, like, okay, wait. So you're telling me we're putting these people away because they harm these people. But we're not actually doing anything to help the people that they supposedly harmed. And then they're going to come back into the communities for which they harmed to do more harm because we didn't do anything while they were there to fix the reasons that they harmed the people that they... Wait, okay. So it was a lot of this, like, talking in circle yeah, for myself. It doesn't make sense. It just right? doesn't make sense. And and then again, because they were so close to, to me as an individual, was like, well, they're not bad people. They're not trying to harm people they're trying to survive for themselves so like what like again it was just a lot of like this doesn't make sense who decided this who created this process who created this who had the power to make this happen and then who has the power to to change it and I never quite really understood that that answer like the who has the power to change it until much later in life but yeah it was just a lot of like this just doesn't Makes sense, and I wasn't, of course, using the term harm at the time, but that concept was definitely in my head from like sixth grade on. Of like, this this don't make no sense. Why doesn't it make sense? Somebody help me, and no one could help me at the time. Right, yeah. There's there's this piece. Uh, one of your co-authors uh, in the Colorizing Restorative Justice book talks about, you know. You know, how can we have a restorative process um, when the state um, is the one that's doing the harm, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just like, you, we, when we send people to prison or to jail or like even like on electronic monitoring or on probation, right? Like, right. what are the supports that we're doing to help them change their circumstances, right? What are the things within their communities that are intentionally um right. underfunded right to prevent those circumstances from happening right we talk about uh, uh i don't know when you talk about restorative justice or teach you know uh, you know what on top of the iceberg is what happened what's below mm-hmm. the iceberg is like the root causes right but what about the water all around the iceberg that right. is contributing to like all those all those issues it's not just like oh this person did this because they're trying to fuel their drug habit right their right. drug habit is caused by like all these other things and these things are caused by the economic conditions racism <laughs> uh white supremacy uh <laughs> exactly. ca- all, all of the things around it um that um contribute and so to restore that person's drug habit really isn't like helping the whole right it's yeah i mean exactly we're creating systems that like just create a cycle that people just cannot seem to get out of and by not addressing that that root um you know, it just, again, people, you know, end up in and out and it becomes, you know, quick, quick fixes in terms of like, 
well, I need to make money, but I can't make money because I'm an ex-con and I'm an ex-con because if I didn't make money. <laughs> so now, well, okay, I'm here and now I got to do these things. And you're like, it just, this cycle and cycle and cycle that, you know, has done nothing for, for, for really anyone. And, and how do we change it? And also how do we see those people as worthy of of change and there was a time when we for like I don't know maybe like a two-year period where like rehabilitation was like a part of our systems but even mm-hmm. within that they were they weren't great yeah so yeah you've been thinking about all of these like from the age of 12 maybe earlier <laughs> up through high school um, you decided to go into education um, where did you see the intersection of this work you talked about learning about the school to prison mm-hmm. pipeline but how did you like you know this is where how did you decide like this is where I want to put my energy and time yeah I mean I, I my undergraduate so in the sixth grade I decided I wanted to be a psychologist um, which is where all of this kind of formatted because again I was thinking about like what is the psychology behind a person who decides to do these types of things that get them into trouble um but like and then what are the systems that you know put them in a position where they feel like they have to do this so for me it was about how do I understand the human nature of a person and how they kind of operate in the systems that are around them and so like from sixth grade on it was like psychology like I just knew I didn't know exactly what within psychology but I was like people minds thought processes I need to understand I want to understand people um and you know did a lot of work um as an undergraduate student was involved in a number of different capacities and again all of my work from even when I was in high school I worked at a teen center and a youth center like so being with and engaging with people has always kind of been my thing. Um, and then <clears throat> when I was deciding on where to go to for my master's degree program, I was thinking about counseling psychology, but then ultimately ended up doing um, higher education. Like, so uh, it was long title, educational and counseling psychology with an emphasis in college student personnel. Um, and part of it was thinking like, where a lot of people are really able to do a lot of that unlearning is in higher education. So when they're in their undergraduate experiences for the first time, they're away from the communities that have taught them one way, and they're now being situated in a position where there's opportunities without kind of home influences that perhaps are like telling them not to unlearn things. To, to be in a more open environment and more open space to, to, to challenge maybe their lived experience, the, the things that they know to be true. Um, and my really thing was like, how do I support other people in doing that and doing that kind of like that unlearning or um, really discovering themselves for the first time? Mm-hmm. And and so then that became kind of like my my new, like, how do I just support people in this unlearning process? Um, and so then education kind of became the thing. It was like my my, my jam, uh, if you will, <laughs> and kind of just stuck. And I've been in working in higher education since 2006 full time. And then the restorative piece of that really, I think, just added to this idea of what we're what we're doing in that space is as we're helping to kind of heal and recognize and understand harms we're also doing is we're unlearning things. We're trying Mm -hmm. to help the people, both those who have been impacted and those who are causing the harm 
to kind of unlearn and unearth like the root cause of where this pain is coming from and how it's impacting their personal relationships, the relationship with the community around them. And so I think that that's just like been both an unconscious kind of thing that like is just kind of like people and feelings and empathy and I feel what you feel so much so that like I forget what it's called all the time that like literally when I watch people fall my legs tingle like mm. so it's I don't know if I was gonna like make up a term like somatic empathy or something like that there's an actual term for it but I can yeah. never remember what it's called mm-hmm. and because I was like I feel like this is not normal and I went to the doctor and they're like it's normal I'm like oh okay great um so I'm not abnormal I mean I'm abnormal but it's a normal abnormality. It's a known thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, oh, okay, thanks. It's good to know that I'm just not an emotional hot mess. Uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I am an emotional hot mess, but that's not the reason why I feel pain when I watch people fall or get hurt on TV. Mm-hmm. I don't, I remember what we were talking about now. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Um, I think that, like, leads us to like a good place to dive into like what you talked about in this book colorizing restorative justice like uh restorative justice co-opting um Mm. sorry higher education co-opting restorative justice work um for you um i had the conversation two hours ago for everybody listening i had this conversation weeks ago (laughs) with uh sandra sosa about you know through our conversation something really clicked for me where You know, there are people who have been doing restorative justice work from, like, not even using the word restorative justice, right? Right. Um, Knowing it from indigenous perspectives and, like, this is just the way that we are. We value interconnections. This is the way that we build relationships. This is how we honor equity. This is how we honor the whole person. And, of course, when there is harm, we're going to repair that harm. And this is just the way things are. Um, Because of colonization, white supremacy, and all that, those ways have been... um, hidden and had to be preserved and so they are not mainstream anymore but now that we live in a culture dominated by white supremacy culture colonization um there are people like you who grow up um only knowing a culture of white supremacy and dominance and questioning it and now we bring in something like restorative justice that can be seen as an alternative right right and you talk about like in your book uh, in in the chapter like this is not an alternative um right. i just want to kind of let you go off of that prompt yeah i mean exactly it's not an alternative right and i, and I often say that like whenever i'm talking to people about restorative justice i was like if you think you can turn on a restorative justice hat then you're not doing it right um mm-hmm. because restorative justice is a way of being it's not a thing that you do um and and because again it is a it is a way that that people have existed for as long as there have been people um like you know restitution and and what we would now kind of label as restorative justice or restorativeness have kind of coexisted for a long time and it wasn't really until i mean we don't want to get into like the bible and the quran and stuff like that but but even even in those spaces, the way that often retribution happened is not the same way that we have retribution now in our current mm-hmm. society. Thank you, King Henry the First. Um, but <laughs> just a little, if anyone wants to research, you know, the legislature of Henry C.I., you know, the 1100s, it's his fault that we have our current criminal justice system. So thank him. But um, this idea that like, 
the the systems that we have right now um you know if we see restorative justice as an alternative then we see it as something we can plug and play um Mm -hmm. something that we can like i'm gonna take this piece here or i'm gonna take this piece and we're just gonna do this and like tie it with our current system but the reality is like there are ways in which they can they can um cohabitate if you will or they can coexist in in systems simultaneously but but the reality is that they they operational they're operationalized very differently (laughs) they do different things and so you cannot take a system that requires minimums and do that with restorative justice because there there are no minimums right like we as a collective decide what the outcome is, is going to be how we're going to resolve the situation you cannot pair that with a system that mandates if x happens you know y then also has to happen so those those two things don't don't work together um you cannot pair a system where on the one hand you're you know again i'm telling you you have caused harm even you, if you have not admitted any such harm i am finding you responsible with a system which is asking people to say this is a name how i have caused harm who i have harmed in the process to be able to then hold myself accountable with the support of other people if you just told me i was responsible and then tell me i've got these things to do that that's not happening i don't have to take any type of actual ownership or accountability in that in that space you just tell me what to do i'll do the thing i never actually admitted if i did it or not now i'm also incentive to yeah no incentive to participate our our current systems our western culture doesn't create space so even reality is even if i wanted to own the things that i have done to another person we have created no system for that to happen right Mm -hmm. so if i harm you and i'm like david i would like to apologize to you the way that our current society is set up is a you david are probably not even going to want to talk to me because you're going to assume that i'm not actually going to want to apologize to you because we've not ever done that so you're realistically avoiding me and then if for some reason you do decide you want to talk to me i as like the person who's caused harm i don't I don't know how to take accountability. I don't know how really to apologize because we've not seen any really good examples of how to do that. And so then the apology is not really genuine or maybe it is genuine, but it still doesn't meet the needs of of you who's been harmed. And so we've not set up any structure to be able to really do that. And so how do you mesh a system that basically says you don't actually have to apologize or take ownership with a system that's actually asking you to do all of this work to do those things so they just they they don't work together in a lot of ways um and so i i I was fearful that these white supremacist systems as as institutions of higher education like ooh, buzzword restorative justice yes this sounds great love it let's do it and then be like yeah we're gonna do a restorative process but also there's still some mandatory minimums and also there's still uh you found responsible so now you're going to go through this restorative process no 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 for those of you who aren't watching this (laughs) i'm getting a lot of like what the hell are we doing (laughs) right it 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 doesn't line up um 
the the big question is then like are these compatible i mean like you're trying to do the work yeah what does that look like there are ways in which they are compatible in terms of what our ultimate goals are in the processes right so if we think about it in terms of like what we want the outcomes to be in our process there are ways in which our i'm going to just use the term traditional conducts or traditional criminal system process um and restorative processes can be compatible but the reality is is that like the way that we that we function makes it so that they can't be right so they really just have to operate as kind of two very distinctive things um and and they cannot really mesh together at least in terms of doing for the justice part of it to happen right so there's restorative practice and some restorative elements can be embedded if you will into your traditional processes so the way that we the language that they use the way that we use restorative questioning can be added or embedded into traditional processes so it you know, we could still be, again, trying to get to the root cause of harm, all of those types of things. We could still kind of embed some of the framework there. We could still do, like, addressing, like, harm in terms of doing, like, harm circles or community building aspects can still be done. But for the justice part of that to actually happen, where accountability, meeting the needs of the harm, meeting the needs of the community kind of all intersect together... I don't see where traditional processes, at least as though they currently kind of operate and restorative um, justice kind of like being compatible in that way. Um, I think it, it just takes, again, because part of it is we have to already rethink and reorient people to the ideas of what justice even is, right? And so how do you convince your stakeholders and people that like dismissing someone from a community isn't actually helpful and yet at the same time the problem is and I, I think I wrote this in the chapter I don't really remember um but like the way that our current systems are that they are already privileged people certain people mm-hmm. and as we think about in systems that are already privileged people introducing this this kind of framework will it ultimately still privilege those same people in that process? So in terms of like thinking about how do you convince the people who have been disenfranchised by our current systems, who see it as your community has been ravished and like demolished by our traditional systems. And now we're like, let's talk about this new, this idea of justice from this different lens. And we want to, to introduce it but what I see perhaps as a person who comes from a community that has just been disenfranchised is, well, where was this at when my community was being destroyed? And now these people get the benefit of this new system, whereas my community was destroyed. And so I want to see them get the same type of punishment that we had gotten for a long time, because is it is it fair? And so how do you really work with people to understand that, like, yeah, these people who maybe have been privileged by the system before are going to get this privilege, but also you are going to get this privilege, you know, at, and, and at that point it's no longer a privilege, but you will get this benefit, you know, as well. Again, assuming that you actually do make it right. so that everybody <laughs> can be partici- participating in the process, which becomes another part of the 
the systemic thing is like who who gets the benefit of such a process so then you have to ask right. that question yeah i think one of the things that's coming up for me is like there are some common goals and like very different goals right so from an institution trying to uh implement these processes these processes are being implemented so we can include more people into our system and make them feel safe but we still want to do things our way and we still want to Mm -hmm. survive and thrive as an institution um when justice might say like no, you need to give up your power, or maybe you don't need to exist as an institution at all, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and like, exactly. And, and, like, and that's where it clashes, right? We can talk about higher education. We can talk about policing. We can talk about a lot of institutions, right, in, in that framework. Because like, I do know for a fact, right, that there are very well-intentioned people in higher education or in policing. Let's talk about police. Let's just talk about higher education because that's what the chapter is about, who want to do things better than they are, right? And say like, okay, let's adopt these restorative practices and make them fit into, you know, what we have. Is that net positive or is that just corrupting something that was good? Yes. To both. I mean, I think that there are, so I guess it depends on like how, how deep are you trying to go? So I think that there is some net positive again in the way in which, you know, entering into the conversation with the thought process of like identifying harms, not just violating policy becomes a net positive in that way, right? And switching and thinking about that system because then we start thinking about like secondary targets or we start thinking about like the community, the smaller community by which those individuals are, you know, invested in in that space. Um, but I also think, and and I'm always cautious when I talk, when I'm like in working with, 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 with institutions, I'm like, if you're doing any of these processes, just don't call them restorative justice or don't recall them restorative practices. Just do them, but don't use this language um, because I think there are ways in which it, it does kind of, it ends up, it could lead to corruption um, of an actual process or practice because you're not really, again, you're not doing the justice part of it you're you're Mm -hmm. you're doing (laughs) you're addressing a piece um but you're not really getting to the the justice part of it um and so that's why I'm always very careful like I think justice is not going to be happening in, in institutions of higher education for a really long time unless we completely destroy them uh and start anew or get rid of our conduct systems and start fresh um so I don't I don't know that restorative justice is what is what is happening or can happen in institutions of higher education, but I do think that there are ways in which restorative practices can still help alleviate some of the pain that that manifests at those institutions because we're not doing we're not taking basic care of the people who are at the institutions. Um and so right. how do we <laughs> How do we address those things or, or making space for them to feel heard and validated? Um, and how do we focus on the community building piece of it so that 
people have the right community to want to be able to one on the preventative side of things like you know I I will hopefully then like not want to actively harm you because I now see you as like a person who's like mm-hmm. worth of my, my respect um but then like if I do harm you then wanting to try to find ways to make amends so I think for me I, I really think that the the ultimate goal that I hope is that like the the community building aspect of what restorative practices can do is where the focus is in higher education. Um, And it should be the majority of your work, broadly speaking anyways. And so that's where I see the net positive happening. But in terms of like using that language of like restore the justice piece of it, I'm like, I I don't think that that's ever going to really happen. So you say like restorative practice instead of restorative justice. Yeah. Yeah, I I know like words are important and language evolves. And when we're talking about a phrase that's been thrown around since like the late 70s, restorative justice, right? It's meant a lot of different things uh, to a lot of different people. Um, And like for me, as I'm growing Amplifier Day, thinking about how to introduce this to more people um, and not have it co-opted is a challenge, right? Because like I do think there are net positive things that don't just belong to restorative justice right Right. if we think about like nonviolent communication is a practice that is restorative um and we can teach you about nonviolent communication and that is a net positive thing right um are you doing restorative justice because you are communicating nonviolently you're doing better right right? exactly that is a net that's a net positive thing um and have you like addressed the harm that um you or an institution has um like inflicted not necessarily right yeah that's really helpful yeah yeah (laughs) exactly so much when we do when we do these (laughs) so like i'm glad that that makes sense yeah and that's exactly how i think about it i think that like there are things that we can do that that i like to say they operates from a restorative lens um again like how how we're framing the questions the types of things that that we're doing and how we're engaging engaging people but if we're not getting to like if we're not going to be able to actually address (laughs) like the root cause of a thing or if we're not going to actually be able to like you know we think about our what do we need to do to make this person feel whole or and I, i was just doing a thing with um an organization yesterday and so like someone was asking like can you really like especially when you're thinking about things around like racial trauma and harm and and things like that can because this idea of restoring things means to put it back to the way that it was and there's really no way to do that and so I'm like I think about it in terms of like right when we crack a cup right we drop a cup and we put it back together mm-hmm. it's gonna for the most part it's going to look completed or it's going to look like it's pretty much put back together but we know there's still going to be little cracks and seals and things that are going to be missing and so it's it's not so much of like I think again that language of like restoring something back to the way that it was and it's like well no we're never going to get anything back to the way that it was but we are kind of recrafting it in a way that it it can feel whole enough that you can use it that it can be used um and that and that's kind of how I see this this work here and so there's pieces that we could do that can help seal some of those cracks or start to put it back together even though we may not be able to like make it look the way that it once was the idea of getting things back to how they were has never sat well with me 
because in order to do that, you need to time travel. Right. <laughs> right? Like, right. for me, like, the restorative piece is, like, to make things as whole as possible, right? Right. To uh, be in right relationship. And to be in right relationship may mean in some instances, like, you're creating a relationship that didn't exist in the first place, right? And, yeah, that's that's something that's always stood out to me because, like, you know, you do have a model of, you know, a cup breaking and, you know, you glue it back together, you tape it back together, you do whatever to get it back together. And like, it can still function as a cup. But when we're talking about a relationship between people where, where right. there is harm and people don't know each other, um, restoration to me means like creating a relationship where mm-hmm. those people can be like, it's not something that existed. And right. then some people will argue, okay, well then now you're talking about transformative and it's like, okay, mm-hmm. now we're talking. And like, I, I do want to be like sensitive to like the nuances of all of that. Yeah. But, like, none of like restorative transform, restorative justice, restorative practices, transformative justice, community accountability. Like, I think we're all talking about um, like an indigenous way of being like in right, right relationship with, you know, all beings, like being yeah. a good relative. One of the things that stood out to me uh, also in the book is people who are resistant uh, mm, to this mm-hmm. work. Um, I want to read the quote uh, out of a study by um, a bunch of people who are doing work around this, uh, sociology, justice, and international relations in Australia and Japan. And I'm just going to read it verbatim. I know okay. you know what you wrote, but for everybody else who's, who's listening... Um, So the authors of this study found that the preference for more punitive measures was fueled by fear of crime, fear of the poor, and the belief that traditional values are decaying. How do we work with people who have that as their worldview and bring them into a more restorative work? Yeah, and I think part of that, again, is this idea of so it's what I was talking about too, this idea of like the unlearning piece of mm-hmm. like thinking about like my work with like undergraduate students and I'm, I promise y'all I'm not trying to like, you know, it's not liberal indoctrination, I promise. Um, I mean, it is a little bit, but, um, <laughs> but it's not, not from the perspective of like, oh my gosh, like you libtards, like not like that, but like in the sense of what we what we have seen is kind of this this traditional or conservative kind of way of thinking um, has left people unable to see and under develop empathy for other people. Um, and so part of that then is really how do you get people to develop empathy <laughs> and <laughs> and like and that's really hard. you can kind of get past that like, the this like you know people who are like i'm i'm you know we're we're breaking our traditional values so what's a traditional value and why do you hold that and why do you believe that and so really it's about unpacking the 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 stem of that belief and then trying to find ways to connect that idea and belief to maybe where somebody else is coming from and so again when i've talked about before like this idea of like the community building piece is like the most essential part and and that again is to your point earlier like when you're building relationships so that you can, which may, again, this idea may have to create a new relationship in order for, like, wholeness to kind of happen. It's in the same way of, like, well, we now have to get these people to hear, you know, how we understand the world and understand it 
from these different perspectives and in, in, in ways so that allows them then to develop that empathy for the other person and through that empathy and that development that we're creating through that kind of bonding then we can start to see that like this idea of like punitiveness doesn't actually make me feel good because now this person I've created this relationship with this bond with is going to experience a type of pain that I don't want for myself so why would I want that for them and so it in theory like right like on paper it's like yeah this is an easy step develop Mm -hmm. empathy empathy means I don't want my fellow man to be harmed and therefore I don't want them to have to experience this punitive thing um and so it's like yes in three easy steps um but not really because the developing empathy part is that is that hard part it's like how do you really get people to let go of and it's not really let go of their held beliefs but like how do they understand how their belief operates in relationship to other people and their beliefs and how do well, they I mean, I think like the step before aligned. that is how do you get them to stop and even think about that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and... In in the hustle for survival every day that you know capitalism forces us to to participate in, right? When people um, fear like not being able to put food on the table, mm-hmm. not being able to pay their rent, not being able to you know take care of their their needs. Like I'm not trying to have a conversation yeah. about like what everybody else is going through. I'm just trying to right. eat. And um, a a source tells me, like, <laughs> that those people over there are the problem. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And so that's why I say, like, starting from their perspective of, like, just engaging them about, like, the... So, like, again, I'm talking, like, so if you're saying it's a sense of security, well, what does the sense of security mean for you? And, like, what does that mean to you? And, like, how do you, how do you get it in this way? And then thinking about, well, how can we get you that same sense of security in a different way so starting from like okay it's like well I need you know these people to go back to where they they're from I'm like well, what does those people going back to where they're from do for you and as they kind of like unpack that or address that like okay well then how else can we get you this without that thing happening which the reality is then you start to like unpack it like it ain't got nothing to do with them but we don't we don't go immediately there because you know they they're like what are you talking about it's not it's not their fault I'm like oh, it's not it's not their fault um but you know kind of again doing it in that kind of step so starting with their own kind of thought process and breaking that down into kind of like little markers that you can start to break apart or un- unpack I should say not break apart you can hold your beliefs as, as long as you want to but I want you to, you know, bring something else in there with it. Right. It's it's an invitation, right? Not mandating like, no, you're wrong. And this is the way that you have to believe now. Right. right? Um, how does that look like in your work with students? Yeah. I mean, I think it's spending a, <laughs> spending a, a number of like times, meetings, individual meetings, sometimes with like a single student or a group of students. Um, to do some of that like again what does and asking that question repeatedly what does that do for you what does this thing help you accomplish how can we get that accomplishment or that thing that you say that you want in a different way um and so kind of engaging in that conversation um and sometimes it can take three four five six seven (laughs) 
meetings with an individual or a small group of people, usually not that long, surprisingly, at least in some of the work that I've, I've gotten to do. Um, but I think so a prime example, um, one that I think was, I always say it's fun and it's so weird to talk about it being fun. Um, but we had a, an incident with like a, a, a sports team, um, using a racial epithet in the direction of a Afro-Latina faculty. And so it was like, in working with the team really was about focusing first in our initial meeting, just really around what does it mean to be a team and what does it mean to be a teammate? And like, how do you, how does your team know what it means to be like, what are the unwritten rules and how do they learn it? So how does a first year player know what's acceptable and what's not? And we just spent the whole first time we met just really unpacking that and like, what are your individual values? And, and then from that using their own words and their own language, to then start to contextualize like representation of like the institution and you know how to you know people see them as a result of this kind of incident and you know breaking apart like these different kind of elements and then thinking about like what does it mean to be like an a bystander in your own team so if you say that this is your community norm or the things that you see are valuable how will somebody know that if you're not challenging them and this belief and these ideas and these types of things and so and then doing that work and then leading that you know led to like having conversations around like how do we get like you know people from like our institutions to like support them and I was like well it would be helpful if you didn't look like an ass hope I'm alone uh like then people would support you but if they think you're jerks because of these types of things that you do why would they come and support you so mm-hmm. you got to do this work here to shift your image and then you can get people to then want to come and support you because they're supporting you as individuals and as a collective team. But if I know these three guys over here, in a way, though it's not always fair, they represent your team. And if they're behaving this way, people are going to think the rest of y'all behave this way. So how do you hold each other accountable for how you want to be represented as a team? And so just really kind of like engaging in that type of work with them to get them to think in that process and like, and then, you know, using again, their own language in that process. And, and, um, and then that led to some additional work for a couple of years after that fact with the team, which was, again, it was a lot of fun. I had fun with them. Yeah. How do you, uh, create the time to make that happen? Um, good question. I mean, I think part of it is the, my roles on campus, um, make it so that I can I can kind of make that time and in those previous positions I was in the leadership position so I you know I I make my time I I make my schedule if you will so right like (laughs) not not you yourself yeah like so like so much of this work does take time yeah and how do you create that time for other people to engage in that kind of space yeah I mean I think that again that goes back to that idea what I was talking about too like that how do you get your stakeholders invested in this process and so if you're going to continue to think about this idea of like it it fitting into your current model it's not going to work because to to a degree there are some incidents or or things that you may be addressing that could take the same amount of time um, as a traditional process but I think you have to have the investment from I think like has an an hourglass from the top and the bottom. And so no matter which direction you flip it, there are people who are invested in it. What usually ends up happening again, whichever direction you flip it, there's the people in the middle 
who would like slow down your process a little bit um but you know if we if we have that kind of momentum and so again it is the like investing in the community building process because again if, if multiple people are aware of like this idea of like being in circle or being a little bit more vulnerable then when something does happen that you need to address they're prepared to engage in that process and it feels it's it's kind of like a normative behavior a normative practice and it's not a a foreign thing to do so that's a piece of it thinking about how do you just incorporate the idea of um circle practices and diff- different elements so mm-hmm. doing it with roommate agreement processes like again thinking the higher education lens um doing stuff like this in your classes so starting every class doing you know rounds or check-in questions or, or things like that so in that level and then from your upper administration saying like again if if we're going to be invested in this then we have to commit time both in terms of the resources the people who can help to facilitate um and then you know other people's willingness to participate in the fullness of that process and recognizing that you know we we did that over the course of a, of a month um and thankfully the the coaches were like we're going to just use our regular meeting time every week to do this and then you know some other stuff and so I'm like but again you know their reputation was on the line so I think they're a little bit more willing to engage in that right. process. I think about, <laughs> as I think about this, like I'm trying to think about how to frame it in a way like do this work, not to like save face or like not so you won't get right. sued or not for like, like right. how do we frame it like in a positive? Cause like you can say like, you know, stronger community relationships, yeah. uh, higher accountability, respect among others. And a lot of times using those words, people are like, Oh no, we're good. We got that until it goes wrong <laughs> yeah. right but I mean I think again so using like that critical race theory lens is that you do need that interest convergence and that's where it is sometimes to get that stakeholder buy-in is this is going to ultimately make y'all look a little bit better and so if that's where we sometimes have to enter into the conversation let's enter in there from there but I think as as people engage in the process they can then find the value of of it they can find value of like being in circle they can find you know again this value of like oh i'm being seen as as a as a student as a human and not you know as a person who you know engages in this like bad behavior or whatever else might be um and then from that then wanting to continue to engage in the process but you know if that's how if that's how we have to enter sometimes it's just like if that's the interest convergence, that's the interest convergence. Fair enough. In doing this work, what's been like an oh moment and what did you learn from it? Hmm. What's been an oh moment? <laughs> Probably all of it. Um, I think, <laughs> I mean, because it's, I mean, I think that the, the beauty and also the, the fresh, not frustration, the, the struggle or the challenge, I should say, of, like there's no one definition, there's no like exact model, there's no like step one, two, three. I mean there there are basic things that like you should be engaging with in this process, but everything which again is the beauty of it is really situational, it's contextual, it's 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 dependent upon the thing that you're addressing or the community that you are in. And I think that that constantly also brings in this like because 
you're like, okay, well now this is a, I have to like, in a way, start from scratch every single time with the group. And so I think the realization of that, that I cannot copy and paste like my outline from this last group that I worked with or this last thing and, and do it with this you new know, group. Um, and so I think that that really is just like the, the learning process of like it is in a way having to dump your mind completely and starting fresh each time. Again, this is when you're focusing on working with like around a particular incident, not necessarily when you're doing ongoing work with one particular community. But um, yeah, that is just like this constant like brain dump of like, okay, just ignore everything you just did. And this last thing, because you have to start completely fresh, because these are completely new people who have, you know, different needs, who have different expectations, who have different understanding. And even if they're not aware of, like, what's Jordan processes, you're still having to explain it without explaining it. <laughs> I don't know if that's helpful, if that makes sense. But, yeah. So, I think, that, yeah, it's just, I think it's just that constant, like, here we go again type of thing more so than like a I don't think I've had thankfully a like awful moment or thing or moment that I've experienced that has been like that has rocked my world I should say yeah Yeah. no that and that's fine it's (laughs) that the answer of like you know having to not treat any situation the same like is super important because like the situation the principles are the same right right but the situations are as unique as the people <laughs> who are right. engaged and you know all humans are unique and even like i did this with this person this time this person is also a different person like you know right. five months later right yes. and they've experienced a lot of different things um and maybe some of those things are similar uh but you know you can't expect things to go exactly the same uh people aren't that neat and uh this work is is not neat what would you say to someone who is engaged in higher education either as a student or someone who works in higher education about like getting started in these practices Mm. um i think one is 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 i think obviously is is researching and learning a, a little bit about its indigenous roots um for sure because I think you have to really understand contextually, like how how different that worldview is from the world that you're used to. If you grew up in in a particularly Western, but especially American culture, and by American I mean United States of America. Let me not clarify, not South America or Central America, but mm-hmm. this this part of the Americas. Um, that your understanding of justice or even um humanness is 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 vastly different from what you're going to be trying to enter into to a degree and so if even if you like me from an earlier age was like something about this don't make no sense you're still deeply embedded in that culture and and in Mm -hmm. those communities and so spending a lot of time I think really rethinking and retraining yourself around what does accountability look like from this aspect of community 
I think is going to be one of the most important things that you can do because then that, that then helps you again become a person who is operating from a restorative lens all of the time or at least as much of the time as you can because again as I talked about at the beginning it for me I see this restorativeness is something that is and it's not a thing that you do and so how do you constantly change the way that you are entering into spaces and entering into conversations with people and so how do you become make that like a habitual thing of how you show up in spaces before you ever start thinking about how you're going to do this with and for other people so really doing that internal work first Mm -hmm. um is the first step yeah. And then go and then go read a bunch of other books like Little Book of Restorative Justice and then like the colorizing book, read chapter eighteen. Well yeah, I was gonna say, like this was supposed <laughs> to be a plug for like the CRJ book because in the chapter that you wrote, um, you have a bunch of reflection questions for people to be asking themselves um and their institutions. I realized one of the reflection questions was a version of what I asked you about like in your answer around like uh, interest convergence, but like how do we get institutions to care about DEI and community because it's just essential to our well-being, not because like it right. supports the bottom line or it prevents us from getting sued yeah. or you know all those things. Yeah, I mean, I wish I had the answer for that. <laughs> and I think and I do think that there are I think part of it is is finding the people in that community who do have that philosophy and that way of thinking um, and starting to kind of build that coalition to to make it clear. Because I think part of it right now is that people don't know who has a similar kind of mindset of them. And, and because we don't we don't feel like we are there's enough of us, which there probably are more of us than there are other people but we don't have the the space or opportunities to connect with one another it could feel like I can't speak up and challenge the normativeness of the white supremacist culture of higher education because we don't have institutional power we're not on the board of trustees we're not the board of regents we're not the president we're not you know in those different positions and so it could feel like why can't challenge this idea and shift the ethos of our community because there's it's just me or it's just me and my little one friend over here and so I think that is one way is to start to find those people in those communities to start challenging that that ethos but I think again is at all levels of the institution how do we again start to see people as human so where do we start doing that development of the community building aspect work even in the smallest way where it's starting you know going into like your dean's council meeting and be like let's use the talking stick um i'm just i mean i'm not kidding but i am but i'm but i'm also kind of kidding there or let's start with a check-in right (laughs) yeah like like let's start with these basic things where again we start to operationalize this idea of like being in community with each other and i think some campuses will, will be better at that than others just based on how they you know if you take like a texas a&m where you know based off of their football team you've got like the 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 13th man type of thing and they've got like they're they're I forget what they're called but like they're people who like basically lead the chants and stuff like that at the games and like everybody knows them and you've got like the, the overalls and you've got like there's and they have their fish camp and so there's things that they are embedding around from um, around the cultures and traditions of Texas A&M well within that work you've already got this thing that you've you started with this fish camp 
where people are learning about these cultures and traditions of this institution, well, why not embed this idea of like, right, you're developing community in that space, but let's be a little bit more intention intentional about how we're thinking about community in this aspect, right? And so there are some spaces where I think they could they could be a little bit better. They'll have an easier time, I think, of maybe doing some of that that shifting in thinking. But again, it is the unless we're literally just gonna throw the whole institution away and start over, it's gonna be really hard to operate from that lens of just like, yeah, people are are worth like our love and attention, um, and and that's why we should care. Um, yeah. And so because that's again again as already established i'm not a very optimistic person so <laughs> i i operate from the lens of like that's not going to happen so how do i get you on board well if you want your students as the demographics of this institution continue to change and you need more people of color to show up to like you know fully function as an institution and like get them coins well you need to create an environment for which they actually want to come to your institution and they don't want to come to your institution right now because y'all are trash so how do we become not trash? Well, we got to do these, you know, 14 steps to do that. And now look at you, look at you and all the wonderful people who now want to come to your institution instead of going somewhere else because you're doing the work. There you go. <laughs> so. Yeah. And uh, right. Like there is no one answer to all of this, right? It, right. It is largely dependent on the relationships you have with people because like uh, even when, like people don't listen to outsiders. Yeah. People, right? You have to have the relationships. And I think like there are ways that like expert culture is problematic where people will say like, "Oh, well, like well this person from this place did it in this way, like let's right. just do that." Like that's not like there 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 can be pros and cons to that, right? right? Like, "Oh, great, you had this idea about like we want to be like a more inclusive place, um but the way that they did it there is not necessarily the thing right. that is going to uh, bring equity to the space that you're in. Um, I'm really curious then what, um, I asked you at the beginning, like what gives you hope, but I guess for me, like what do you hope for, um, for your institution, maybe like in the next five years? Yeah. Well, I think for me that my ultimate goal really is that like circling is happening, <laughs> that we are very intentional about creating space for people to unlearn. Um, and so like one of the things I'm doing this this spring is I'm doing like a little multicultural leadership institute where we're definitely going to be engaging in like circle practices and stuff like that. But that at every level of the institution, we at least, we know what restorative justice is or like, or transformative justice or like all of these different thought processes are um and not the expectation that like we're gonna be implementing them so much but that we are at least starting to think about what small shifts that we could do so again like what are the net positives that we could do that we can create at the institution um would I love to throw away our whole conduct system yes do I think that's gonna happen in a five-year time Well, it depends. No, I'm like <laughs> depends on how much control they give me. Um, no, um, but that we are, you know, thinking about it. You know, we're we're starting to see, and 
I'm like, I just, just wrote a chapter on restorative justice and sexual assault. And I'm like, on the one hand, I'm like, yes, let's do this. And on the other hand, I'm like, you know what? No, let's not do this. Let's, let's not, we're not prepared for that. Um, but again, just how, how do we as institutions start thinking broadly more deeply about harm and not just policy mm-hmm. not just mm-hmm. what's on you know what's on our what's 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 a violation and so part of that is through my work around you know bias incident protocol stuff so like it's not a policy violation but it still has an impact and how do I get the rest of the campus community to understand that impact and and that harm and see this work as valuable so I think that my ultimate goal is one we're really focusing on the community piece and that too, we're thinking more broadly about the concept of impact and harm beyond policy violation. And then in my ideal world, we would just throw the whole conduct system away. And start replace over. it with. <laughs> and replace it with a restorative process. Yeah. What does it take to, like, what is it going to take to do that? Oh, um, I mean, I think one is the people of the institution would have to completely understand what this type of accountability looks like and how it is um it's returning to to a degree a lot of our cultural roots and that what we have seen as justice hasn't really done what we thought it was doing or could do for us so we got to spend some time realigning our ideals of justice you know to start then we've got to spend some time within that really again thinking about who's worthy of this justice of this form of justice or thinking um because people are like yeah I'm down like we don't need to be punished because I'm thinking about me and my friends but when I start thinking about people who are not in my community well I don't want this for them I want them to get this harsh stuff because they're bad people um so you've got to spend some time again really thinking about the humanity of everybody in your community mm-hmm. and that everybody in your community regardless of their background or their different lived experiences is is worthy of the same kind of accountability and redemption that you hope for yourself. Um, and then, and then again, I think it's also then getting people in the practice or the habit of, um, using or, or being engaged in this way of being as a part of like their ongoing processes. So as, as much as they possibly can doing like check-in questions or like being a circle using the, restorative language and like and then throwing in some transformative justice in there too um like throwing in these kind of things that they're just kind of always practicing so I I still always think back to my experience with that non-traditional high school there was two girls who were literally about to get into a physical fight like you could see the girl like raise her arm and then she took as she did she took a breath and then she's like we need a circle and I was just like what just happened the other girl was like yeah I'm gonna go get Mr. Evans and then she went and got Mr. Evans and you know he grabbed the 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 floating teacher to take over his class 
and they went and did their like whole process but part of it is again they were and they did they every about it. they knew about it and they were engaged in it they did circles every single morning they did circle processes and check-ins in their advisory courses they did it at the close of every day they were using it for their conduct process so they were deeply embedded in these uh, this way of kind of thinking and processing their emotions and so you know there was like a guess that original habit of like well i'm about to fight you and then it was like wait why am i gonna fight you when we have this whole process that we've been engaged in and like to see that for me was like that was the moment for me where i was like i am sold on this work but again it's it was a small enough community that they could do that they could really be deeply embedded into this work do i think they were doing it perfectly probably not but they were doing it enough that there was this type of impact that happened in that community and in that space and so that's what i would love to see happening you know in institutions of higher education especially at my own institution but we're much larger and so that takes a lot of work so right now it's like focusing in on the small pocket of communities that i can work with to get them to start thinking that same way of like why why do i need to fight you when we have a process to really unpackage or unpack our emotional things that we're experiencing with each other right now to address our needs yeah absolutely i think like the question that's present for me after all that is like so what uh, at the beginning you know we're talking about liberation so what does this have to say to like what we're dealing with in the united states um on a larger scale that we're trash humans now um i think it, it it is that i because we we have been not i was gonna say we're socially isolated but i'm not talking about in terms of COVID. i mean we are literally actually socially isolated from different pockets of communities and we have seen um and we have been told repeatedly that this is how we serve justice in our communities and when we see things like responses to police brutality like well if you had just complied like that type of stuff tells me that we have a lot of work to do again around thinking about and unlearning this idea of like what someone deserves and doesn't deserve because they complied or didn't comply so like even if you didn't comply does well, and that who mean... that person is that complied or not right exactly right and so we have to as a collective country one again start to think about like the whole like i mean if we're if we're not a christian nation but let's just say for the sake of argument we are a christian nation right this this idea of like love thy neighbor well where is that at like we're not mm-hmm. doing that we're not practicing that love thy neighbor aspect of this thing that we keep saying that we are And if I'm loving, right. my na- <laughs> loving my neighbor, then I would want what's best for my neighbor. And I would want to be, I would see them as I see myself. Love thy neighbor as I love thyself. But perhaps we don't love ourselves. And that's part of where, again, that work has to, I think, to be done is to starting with our own individual selves of like, how do we understand ourselves and our worldviews and our ideas and our values and how do we see this as in, in relationship to then the people around us? You were going to say yeah. something. Uh, 
I was going to say a couple of things. I think like because we're not a Christian nation, well, right. uh, well, I, I do have like a background in Christianity, right? Um, and like that parable about like, you know, the good Samaritan, like that's where like the love my neighbor, who is my neighbor, right? Right. Um, people won't agree on like who your neighbor is, right? Right. Yeah. And so, so like for me, it like comes back to this idea of, you know, like Ubuntu, right? Uh, like I am because you because are. Because we like, are. In right. Lakesh, uh, like I am another you, you are another me. Like Metakuyas and like we are all relatives. Like um, I don't think the the word the thing to say is like no we're all americans right like right. i don't care about like the borders of the, like the united right. states and like right. the construction of the constitution it's it's just like you know we're humans and let's take care of each other but if we can't get to like you know that convergence of uh, of interest like i i'm at a loss for a lot of this right i mean to the point about like us being like in our like you know political bubbles right mm-hmm. um the the things that like we put out through like amplify rj channels right like they go to like tens of thousands of people right um and we get almost zero hate on it right because right. those are people who are like actively searching to like learn <laughs> right. about this stuff right <laughs> like the internet can be like a wild and crazy place but like for us so far it hasn't been because like there right. are people who are like actively going out going after this and like that's great and like i can be really hopeful about that but like I know there is a vast majority right there's a, there's a vast majority of the country who doesn't who can't give a definition of the word restorative justice right right um, and if they did have like a definition of restorative justice being you know a, a philosophy set of practices way of being right rooted in our indigenous roots of the value of interconnection both proactively building and really building and maintaining relationships and repairing relationships when harm occurs right people can get on board with that, right? Maybe. And then, like, what does that mean in practice? Practice, right. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. That's always the hard part is, like, I think there's a lot of people who theoretically will always say, you know, yes, I, you know, the good good for the people around me and da-da-da-da-da, but when it comes to actually the doing part of it, that, that, and I think it's also, it's the, it's the feeling of, we have been so conditioned around like the idea of like market value and capitalism and and these types of things that like this idea of I have to give up something for someone else to get something and and not thinking about the way in which that then becomes cyclical like well yes if you're giving up something for this person to give something then they're also giving up something perhaps then that you can get something but we often only see it as a like well, but I gave up something like, yeah, 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 but you're like getting something (laughs) in return. Mm -hmm. But like, we just can't, people don't, you can't get to that second part of like, (laughs) just like, but, but I gave up something like, yes. And there's an and there. You got something. No. Okay. And people, they're just like stuck on like, I have to give up something. Right. Like, (laughs) I don't want to be like super reductive, but like, (laughs) Oh, like I'm giving up my homogenous community, but I got Mexican food. Oh my gosh. Right. Like, like, I don't know. I'm just being silly. That's just the first thing that came to my brain. I mean, yeah, but yes, 
to yes like right like you get this this other thing like you get things that you didn't experience before and you didn't have before and that you know now you have access to and you 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 know that you know you're now privileged to that perhaps you weren't privileged to before and again if you're all contributing then we're all benefiting but right and like again it wasn't to like reduce like right people to to the food they offer right but like the experiences um and the the exposure to like things different uh different perspectives like help us create solutions and build Mm -hmm. in ways that like we couldn't have without um without others um i gave my definition of restorative justice how do you define restorative justice i see restorative justice as a way of thinking about how we are in relation with one another and what we can do for one another in terms of accountability and support i see it as a means by which we um, are engaging in both harm reduction and harm prevention and as a way of and I don't really like saying rehumanizing people because but that's the only word I can think of right now but I don't like it but it's all I have in my head so we're going to use that (laughs) way of rehumanizing people yeah 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 uh we talked about (laughs) higher education and maybe that's the answer but what's one place or situation where you wish people really knew this work kindergarten (laughs) start early (laughs) start early of i mean i think I often show um, in some of my work and around other stuff, the the Jane Elliott experiment, the brown eyed, blue eyed experiment. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I show that because, you know, those were third graders, right? They they understood very quickly how to create systems of discrimination and prejudice and how to internalize that in all of 15 minutes it didn't take very long and so we do our our deepest learning and development that early right so i mean if we start as early as kindergarten one of again being in this practice of checking in of and not even not necessarily even being in a circle but like the concept of like learning and and caring for people and connecting and finding ways in which we are similar but also acknowledging the ways that we're different but but that difference is not a way in which we should treat each other we shouldn't treat each other differently because of those differences and we start that early um and and we are creating those intentional spaces then i think um this and 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 it continues beyond that point obviously we can't just start at kindergarten because you know i don't remember much around kindergarten other than flipping over a bar and biting my tongue because I got apple juice that day um (laughs) this is why I remember um because otherwise I had to have milk and I don't like milk um but like that's a whole nother thing (laughs) why is milk served in schools when so many students are lactose intolerant anyway (laughs) right exactly exactly so that's why I remember that day wholeheartedly because I was like oh I got apple juice today but um you know, but then continuing that 
stuff. And again, like I think about the fact that I was thinking about these ideas in the sixth grade, but I didn't really have the lens for which to talk about. So obviously they were probably embedded in my head long before that. But as you grow, you start to conceptualize it. So again, if we start thinking about this interconnectedness and we're intentional about that from a very early age, then I think it, it continues into us as adults and as people who then have influence to shift and change what it is that we do and how we engage with one another. Yeah. How has this, how has knowing this work impacted your life outside of work? Um, I do everything in circles. <laughs> I kind of do. Like, even, like, I, so, like, like, like I, I met my biological father for the first time five years ago. And so mm-hmm. engaging with him, it's not obviously, like, a, in an actual circle because it's just the two of us, but the way in which I communicate with him it's like through like this restorative lens of like for my own like connection and development of a relationship with him I'm trying to to do that I'm not as successful because again when it's it's yourself it's a lot harder to do that Mm -hmm. because I again the pessimist in me is avoiding certain things but um you know still engaging some of these kind of practices with my with my biological father so um, and then with my friends, you know, check-ins and with the classes that I teach and doing check-ins and community building processes. And I think, again, just I'm more conscious of my language, um, regardless of the situation and how I'm communicating with people. Um, yeah, I think it's just, it's just, it's just embedded in just like the small things that I do sometimes that I'm not even aware that I'm doing it. Um, until somebody will point it out and I'm like oh I did do that well it was a good thing so let's just go with that it's fine yeah for sure you get to sit in circle with four people that are alive who Mm. are they and what do you talk about oh gosh oh man okay (laughs) Michael Jackson so I've got questions. Um, <laughs> this is not because of like a restorative thing. I just I just have I have have a number of questions. Um, Lyndon B. Johnson. Oh, um, interesting. It's like a lot. I would like to I, if I could. I would like to know. <laughs> this sounds so messed up, Miley. Who? I want to know the person who was taken from the continent of Africa and brought to the United States of America. That is my ancestor of how my lineage arrived in this country. Um, So I'd like to to sit down with that person. Um, And then my mom. Um, And I think all of that really is just, again, is rooted in this, like, this idea of like lineage and and heritage and package. So again, I think about like, again, like so my ancestor and like Lyndon B. Johnson around like civil rights act and all that type of stuff. And like the motivation and like, what was his interest convergence and like unpacking that and like, cause you know, he was still racist, but whatever. Um, and then Michael Jackson. So here's why Michael Jackson. <laughs> yeah, I was like, so how does that one fit? But 
Go for it. So kind of in the same way, right? Like, so like, okay. So theoretically speaking, he has vitiligo. But I don't know about you, but the way that I understand the vitiligo works, it doesn't work the way that it worked on him. Um, But also then looking at the plastic surgery and also so again i'm thinking about like this idea of like ancestral history and like the commodification of black bodies and the cultural influences of like western culture into the point of like michael jackson being this prominent kind of black figure in the community who like changed their appearance to fit into this kind of like western concept or this european concept of like mm-hmm. beauty and understanding even though they were this pillar of like what we would now say is like black excellence and like like the why of like what was going through your head in this way that's there and then like again then thinking it's just getting you know my mom's my mom but like again how does she because she's always been very like, things that were, like, you know, always, like, the natural hair and, like, cutting off all her hair and it's always been very consistent around, like, her blackness is beautiful and, like, owning that and loving that in ways that, like, didn't always work on, didn't pass down to me as much, but, you know, I'm working on it. And so I just see, like, this, like, lineage of, like, how black people operate in this country, I think, is really what I want to understand from these different perspectives of people but then I also have questions around like the whole Macaulay Culkin thing and like <laughs> I want to know like and like you know like you know and like what was happening at Neverland I'm curious because like you know like are you canceled like I need to know if I can listen to Michael Jackson's music is what I need to know right now honestly because I love Michael Jackson's work but also some questionable things in his history that make me say that I probably shouldn't give his family money still off of his work. But like, it's good work, but also you get what I'm saying here. It's complicated for sure. So I'm like, I need answers. (laughs) Definitely. Um, What's one thing you want everyone listening to this podcast to know? To buy the colorizing restorative justice book. There's 18, at <laughs> there's 18 great chapters of work. I've only read 12 of them, to be honest. But the 12 that I have read have all been great. Um, and I think it's a really good... I think it is particularly for white folks who are doing this work. Um, it's a, I think it's an excellent tool to really help challenge... Um, how you show up in spaces as facilitators in particular. Um, but I think to everyone too, again, I definitely think I'm like, weird, start with chapter 18. Maybe not. That might be a bit hard. No. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think that's a good place to start. I'm like, start with chapter 18. Um, start there. Um, and again, especially for folks who are planning on being facilitators or circle keepers or whatever, um to really unpack your life <laughs> and 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 do some unlearning of yourself and really understanding how you show up as a facilitator or circle keeper or whatever um 
before you are really engaging in this work. So you have to know what your triggers are, what you were, where you're limited in your understanding and scope of particular communities that perhaps you're working with, um, finding connections to other people who can help you in that growth and development, um, and then paying people uh, who can help fill in those gaps that um, perhaps you you can't uh absolutely you can't facilitate yourself yeah yeah so uh it's on livingjusticepress.org right now you can buy it in a bundle with um circle forward but from Kate pranis we'll have that all linked in the show notes um and in line with that make sure you're subscribed to this podcast feed because we'll be having conversations with many of the authors as well um who's one person i should have on the podcast and you have to help me get them on um oh that's good probably oh maybe barb sherrard um is an author in the book i don't know if you've already had her uh she is scheduled okay good Um, and so by the time this airs it will have already happened so give me another one um okay let me think um oh nejma um celestine donor and she is doing work um, out of, is she out of the U- University of Maryland at Baltimore? Um, and so she does some RJ work, but she is there. Oh gosh, I can't remember the topic, assistant dean of like diversity, equity, inclusion or something like that. Um, and she's a fantastic human and is doing this work and is really thinking about it from the lens of like racial trauma. Um, and RJ and um, yeah so Nejma and I'll, I'll email you afterwards too just make sure you have the name yeah right, I'm but... looking forward to that email introduction <laughs> yeah and then finally how can people support you or get in touch with you in the ways that you want to be uh, supported um uh you can reach me via email <laughs> desiree.anderson27 at gmail.com um, I think to support support the work, I mean, one obviously is reaching out and asking for consultation, but um, more importantly, as I, I think for me that is, as I asked before, is that you are doing your own investment in your unlearning and preparing so that you can show up as the best facilitator so that as people are, are engaging with restorative justice and restorative practices, that they're getting the best experiences so that the name of RJ is not being tainted that's what I want. Yeah. That's and that's how you can support me. Because <laughs> we are all interconnected. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Anderson, Thank for, you for being here with us. Um, so much wisdom. Everyone else uh, will be back in a week with another conversation. Uh, take care. Until then. Elise here. What a fantastic episode. <laughs> Thank you so much to Desiree for all of your incredible thoughts. So one thing that I took away from this episode was the importance of acknowledging harm beyond policy violations. Having empathy and digging deeper to know the person instead of the violation itself is essential to restorative justice. In what ways do you acknowledge and address emotional harm that extends beyond policy? A quote that really stuck out to me was, Restorative justice is a way of being. It's not a thing that you do. As we end this podcast, I would like you to think about this. How will you practice restorative justice in your personal life and in all interactions with others?
Although this episode has come to a close, there are so many ways to stay involved with Amplify RJ. To learn more, please check out the Black Herd Story reading list and our History of Black Abolition Movements workshops. Thank you so much for listening, and back to you, David. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast on whatever platform you're using right now. It really helps us further amplify this work. You can also support us by following us on our social platforms, signing up for our email list, rocking our new merch, joining our Patreon, or signing up for a workshop. So many options! Links to everything in the show notes and on our website, AmplifyRJ.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.